Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. show we have two big names in medicine one you've heard a lot from over recent times and one who you're going to hear a lot more from in the future professor Catherine bennett now there's a name that rings a bell she was the voice of reason and fact during the pandemic Catherine has done loads of things over her professional life, including coordinating public health for the Sydney Olympics, investigating antibiotic resistance, researching transmission of infectious diseases, and currently, as the Alfred Deakin Chair in Epidemiology at, where else, Deakin Uni, she's looking at pandemic-related phenomena, such as global analyses of excess deaths, public health risk communication, pathology service disruptions, and long COVID treatment pathways. We'll be chatting with her about all things pandemic-related, and in particular, what we should be looking out for for the next big one. Dr. Lexi Frydenberg is a general paediatrician, educator, and most importantly, mother of three teens. And I should declare here that Lexi and I have been friends since our kids were in nappies. That was a long time ago. Her bio says she is passionate about children and adolescent health. And let me tell you something. I've never met anyone, anyone who loves their job so much. She still gets excited by it, even though she's been working in paediatrics for over 20 years at the Children's Hospital and in private practice as well. Outside of her clinical work, she is the child health advisor to Vic Health co-producer and co-host of the Royal Children's Hospital Kids Health Information Podcast, and she regularly, that's a hard word to say on Sunday morning, she regularly writes articles and posts blogs for health and parenting websites. We've asked Lexi to tell us about vaping, about which I know precious little. What's the fuss and where are the facts? So, two great guests, and we'll be joined by our two regular panel members, Dr. Kit Cat, a fully-fledged psychologist to the stars, or at least you're going to go see a star next week, and Nurse EpiPen, head honcho of Spleen Australia. So stick with me, Dr. Mal, for an hour of medicine, music, and our wrap-up of the latest research here on Radiotherapy. Doctor, doctor, give me the news, I got a bad case of loving you. No, 
on. No, you're not supposed to say that when the mic blows red. <laughs> yeah, it's but, only but, been but three it's months. it's live. This is why, you know, you sort of... It's live. Things happen I and people know. ask questions. And I'm rusty. You are rusty. We're all, but you know, this is the great thing about human beings. It's the magnificent imperfection of being mortal. That it's it's the little, um, the little mistakes that we make that make us that feel that that fills me with joy anyway, and is a great excuse for me stuffing up all the time. Good morning, EpiPen. Good morning. We should Dr. also Mark. say good morning to. Is it Professor Kit Kat by now, or is it? Uh, what is it? Should be. I've been robbed. <laughs> Her ascendancy into the lofty ranks of academia has been so speedy. Um, we have some happy birthday wishes today, which is a bit unusual, but they're very, very precious people to us. We should say happy. Well, you go first. Okay. Happy birthday, Francesca Gonzalez, who is thirty today. Thirty today. Thirty and today. Joining Francesca is Amiel, my boy. Who's twenty today? Oh, isn't that fantastic? Children are amazing. They just—it's like—it's just thirty years exactly. Yesterday they were in nappies. Today they're (laughs) going out, boyfriends, girlfriends. Yeah, going to pubs. Yeah, goodness gracious. Now to all things medical. <laughs> Do you like that segue, Kit Kat? Yes. You have been uh, looking, well, you know, once a week or once a month, we task you with uh, looking, trawling through all the medical research to find mm-hmm. something that's going to be incredibly relevant to our lives. And you've pulled out a corker today. Well, I think so. And I think, uh, Amal, you did a great little talking about the human experience. And mm. I think this so. topic touches beautifully on the human experience. And that is the topic of emotions. <sighs> Um, and so this feels like fits perfectly in my wheelhouse and I love talking about client, to clients about emotions and I guess educating clients about emotions because we might not really get taught a lot about emotions when we're growing up but it's, it's something we all experience but we seem to have very little understanding of it. Um, and so sometimes we might perceive that there is there are good and bad emotions but I like to consider that there are, I guess, emotions are all neutral. Some are perhaps more pleasurable to experience and some are perhaps a bit more distressing to experience, but they all have a function. They're all useful. They all motivate us for action. Um, They all tell us something really important about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I came across an article in the conversation um, from a research lab at in Texas at A&M University with Professor Lynch. And um, the article talks about how even the uncomfortable emotions such as anxiety, anger, sadness and boredom mm. um, are really important mm. um, and useful. Um, and I would also chuck in shame and guilt are also often considered the uncomfortable emotions that we like to avoid. So um, this research lab is focusing on the function of emotions and I guess really trying to uncover people's experience. And so, for example, I'll focus on sadness for today. This article covers anger, anxiety, sadness and boredom. And so sadness may arise um, when we perceive that we've lost a goal or a desired outcome and we might perceive that there's nothing we can do about it. And we've all probably felt sad and it might be quite a common experience to notice when you are feeling sad, you kind of become lethargic or become into this kind of deactivated mode. Mm -hmm. And really that's the sadness um, can function by making us to stop and think. And sadness also prompts deeper and more analytical thought. Mm -hmm. So we think deeply about our situation, how we can avoid these risks in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's Really, really important function of sadness. Mm. Non-pathological sadness. Yes, non-pathological yeah, sadness. Yeah. Glad yes. to clarify that. And of course, yes, thanks for clarifying, clarifying Mel. Then on top of how we respond, mm. what can make it more complicated, 
with our emotions is how we respond mm. to those emotions and what can come from that. But yes, non-pathological sadness. Um, another reason um, sadness might come about is if we... Um, you know, didn't have our desired outcome, but we mm. feel like we could have had some help to avoid that failure. Mm. And so sadness can help recruit other people. Mm. So when we're crying or feeling down, it can mm. motivate us to reach mm. out to people to help us reach a certain goal. And that's, you know, present mm. since mm. we're children. Mm. When we cry mm. because we want something, you know, cry because we can't reach a toy or something, and our parent caregiver will go over <laughs> Give the toy to us, pick it up and give it to us. Um, and so I think these, this article and the research in this lab, and there's a few more um, papers that this um, research team has um, published, really helps us kind of, I guess, de- or make us less scared of emotions and perhaps educate us a little bit more about the function and the importance of emotions and maybe we can feel open to experiencing emotions. We do tend to label emotions as good ones or bad yeah. ones, but as you say, when you do that, it, it robs them of a lot of their meaning and what they can be useful to. Like I yes. think especially boredom. I mean, that's a yeah. big one that I've noticed nowadays. Nobody's yeah. bored because you've always got an entertainment device in your pocket. So waiting for a lift, waiting for a tram, getting on a tram, you know, people, myself included, always need uh, looking for stimulation. But it's I, I find when I'm bored, that's when I come up with sort of creative ideas. Yes. Otherwise, I'm just consumed with trying to figure out, you know, this entertainment in front of me. I've also that, that's a great piece of. I, I'm going to get that paper. From, what is? Where's the paper from? It's um, in. The, it's just an article that was in the conversation. Right. Um, I think last <clears throat> week maybe published, but the um, also the research team has published. Um, some other papers that are relevant, and particularly on boredom, because not a lot of research has in yeah. gone into boredom. But you know, you've described it. Your experience of boredom really matches what the researchers suggest that it inspires creativity, or for you to look for something to emotionally stimulate. Stimulate you. yourself, yeah, or yeah. or internally. I tell you, I had a thought whilst I was bored, just driving back down from Sydney the other day. The thought was this about emotions. It's that you never, we never, as human beings, have a, well, very rarely have a singular emotion. Like, mm. we never, very rarely have pure joy or pure anticipation or pure frustration, yeah? It's all, the, emotions always come as an amalgam mixed mm. pretty much. Even for something like, say, you're getting married, right? So you're 99% excited and really looking forward to it. But there's 1% fear, mm. Yeah. And it's and the corollary would be when you're getting divorced. It's 99% fear and 1%, oh, this could be exciting. You know, so so uh, uh, people think that when they have that other emotion um, for an event, they think, well, I shouldn't be having this. But no, 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 no. Yeah. Emotions ca- always come as an amalgam. And I, I, I haven't... Uh, yeah, I haven't read up about it, but um, it's something that I've sort of noticed a lot in myself and also mm. in other people. So, yes, emotions, they're fantastic, aren't they, EpiPen? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we cannot yes. avoid We've, them. I think I've just bored you, haven't I? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, and it's funny, you go to a doctor's practice or yeah. somewhere where you're on a tram and everybody's on their phone and I just make a real point of not being on mine. Yeah. I just, and I look out the just window. To just <laughs> well, I'm trying to vibe them. Get off your phone. And people feel embarrassed or shamed or lonely if they're not on it in a tram setting. 
So I think they do it out of a bit of anxiety. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, gee, if I'm not, I feel like a bit of a loser if I'm yes, not on my phone. Yes, Like exactly, a friend of mine the other day was um, at, a, at a cafe having a coffee and there was no newspaper there and uh, his phone had died. So he just sort of sat there drinking and people looked at him like he was some sort of monster. Like, why, oh, why aren't you involved freak. in something? Why? Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, we're not used to that anymore, are we? No. Do you know, we did have planned um, our little quiz... Do you think we should do it? Or yes, I've got, I'll do it. It's a really quick one. Okay, let's do it. Yeah, okay. okay, just for new listeners okay. to the show, this is where EpiPen um, challenges Kit Kat and myself to three questions and uh, the winner gets to wear a cap for the rest of the day that says... I'm a winner. I'm a winner. Okay, kick off. There are a group of researchers who are edging one step closer to reversing liver failure. Where are they based? Yep. Australia? Yes. A bit more, a bit more, a oh, bit more. Um, Austin Hospital? No. New South Wales? No. Uh, Unusual place. More Tasmania. a cancer hospital. Oh. oh, the VCCC? Peter Mac. Peter Mac. Yes. Yes. Hey, is it Peter Mac or the Victorian Peter Mac. Comprehensive it said Peter Care Mac Center? in the article. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay, next one. Who is age 34, sings... And recently gave two hundred thousand to the V Foundation for Pediatric Cancer Research in North Carolina. Thirty-four. Yes. A bit more of a clue. Can you sing one, of, the, one of their songs? Taylor Swift. Yes. I, that was for you. Oh, thank you. I, um, I just didn't know that she. Yeah, two, that I don't know that she's thirty-four. Yeah. And we're big Taylor Swift fans. 1989, obviously. Oh, okay. 1989, of course. Yes. Oh. You duffer. Okay. What duffer. is entrainment? <laughs> now, this is a really interesting Buzz, one. that's when you have um, um, neurons and one goes off and then it brings a whole lot of others with it. Sort of. Um, it? Apply, well, it is, but it's the, the research of listening to music. Oh, okay. With a, <laughs> it is sort of with a steady beat, right. uh, heart rate and blood pressure may synchronise with the rhythm of the music. Wow. So if you're listening to something, your heart might slowly catch on to the beat. It's not, you know, done in clinical trials, but it's a phenomenon that's been observed. Not a phenomenon. Well, I think there's probably several meanings of the word entrainment when things go in sync, but that's amazing, really. So yeah. when I listen to like... It's to do with neural pathways. So when I listen to slow music, my heart rate slows. And when I listen to fast music, my heart rate... Just doesn't. observe, make an observation, see if it does. Has there been a study? No. Well, <gasps> research space. Copyright, copyright. <laughs> research space. There you go, there's my three. There you go. Well, you get to, win the, you get to wear the hat for the rest of the day, uh, Dr. Kit Kat. Yes, she does. You are listening to Radiotherapy with me, Dr. Mel. Practice, I was about to say, which is what I am, and you, Nurse EpiPen, and Dr. Kit Kat. We're going to play some sponsorship announcements and then come back at you with uh, Professor Catherine Bennett. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Okie dokie, Snokey. Um, I'm going to set the scene in a bit of an unusual way for Catherine Bennett. So I was looking up Catherine's on the... Um, uh, on Google, and I came across the history of smallpox and Catherine the Great's relationship with smallpox. And so smallpox was was caused by, it is caused by a variola virus, which was a very contagious 
hideous disease where you get pox and rashes and a lot of people died from this condition. So in the 18th century, there's some statistics around 400,000 people a year died in Europe alone. And it was a very interesting story. So Catherine the Great um, was very interested in the work done by a scientist called Dinsdale in the UK, and he had developed an inoculation or a vaccine against a virus. I thought it was Jenna. It's Dinsdale. Dinsdale specifically. Jenna's close. They did work together. So she got him over to Russia where she was ruling and said, what's your story? So this is 1762 to 1796. I want to set the year. I'm just wondering how you're going to cycle back to Catherine Bennett. Oh, well, 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 well. <laughs> so so um, she decided she put her faith in Dinsdale and had the inoculation, they called them inoculations or vaccine, and she survived. She survived not only the vaccine, but she didn't get smallpox. Who, Catherine? Catherine and her son, Paul. Get away. Yes. That was on the TV show. So this is is a really interesting setting around viruses and vaccines of which Catherine Bennett in our studio lives, breathes, still lives and breathes, um, is um, going to tell us all about her experience on TV and what happened in the COVID pandemic. But I think we should start at the beginning, Catherine. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where, where schooling? How did you get into your profession? Oh, look, it's, a, it's an interesting life story. When I talk to people who say I want to be an epidemiologist, I, I kind of apologise before I start because mine was a, was a, a winding trip. I was um, originally trained in microbiology, population genetics, applied statistics, um, physical or biological anthropology. So there are areas where ultimately my interest was in human variation, human health, and actually understanding... The distribution of disease, that's actually the um, definition of epidemiology people often don't realise, but it's understanding the distribution of disease and the risk factors to do something about it, you know, to, to try and intervene, to prevent, to make sure our health system knows what's coming, you know. So to me, there was always that interest, but there actually weren't epidemiologists in those days. It was medicos might go into that area. Um, We had a history of epidemiology and clinical epidemiology was important in our clinical trials and getting really good, solid understanding of what drugs actually worked, not just what a senior physician might think works for his patients or her patients. So it was was evolving, but it was really quite late in the piece um, in the 19... 80s that we started to see epidemiological training opening up here in Australia with a graduate sitting amongst us with EpiPen. Um, and that was that was really important. And in fact, you know, that that's where I started doing my PhD, looking at skeletal variability and actually working with Aboriginal communities to understand the origin of ancestral remains where information had been lost. Mm. And so it was about giving back, using statistics in a smart way to try and unpack some of the stories of the past, but most importantly, to identify people who might then use that information to express their custodianship over ancestral remains and have some control over what then happened with remains being repatriated across the country. So I've always worked at that interface between 
using science for good, working with community and trying to get that translation so that you're part of a bigger story about human variability, culture and health. So that's how it kind of came together. But when I was doing my PhD, looking at skeletal remains and actually building our information base for forensic work so that when you do stumble across a skeleton, you know, eroding out of a sand dune, that we had a way of approaching that to, you know, improve our ability to determine whether it was historic, likely to be Aboriginal origin, when we should obviously bring in the Aboriginal communities to be part of that very early, you know, in the process. So I got a job at the Children's Hospital because they're looking for someone to work on a project looking at football injuries in what was then the Vic Kick program, now Auskick, with, with kids. And so, again, that was that really piqued my interest. So I was doing my PhD, worked on that particular project, then moved into other vaccine trials and so on with the Children's Hospital. And after that, after my PhD, I went back to do a Master's of Applied Epidemiology at ANU, which is actually in partnership with health departments, to make sure that I'd pieced together all the school, the tools I needed because I hadn't come through a formal course. So it was, it was fascinating to bring that all back into the health system at the turn of well, last century, mm-hmm. um, and that's when I then moved into, you know, working with the refugee intake in Australia and the, obviously the Olympic Games was around that time as well. So a fascinating mm-hmm. immersion into all mm-hmm. these different ways of thinking about the importance of um, science in in health. Mm-hmm. And and you, um, how did you get a position at Deakin? Uh, I was headhunted actually, which was which was um, which is nice. Yes. Um, but I'd I'd actually thought about coming back to academia because the one thing I was missing was teaching. And I, I did some teaching with um, Sydney University when I was based up in in New South Wales, um, and at University of Newcastle, you'd go in and you'd give the odd you know, guest lecture. But it was I actually enjoy teaching, and trying to build that next generation. And so when after the Olympics, I was really then looking at what I wanted to do, and my uh, original mentor, Professor Terry Nolan from the Children's Hospital, um, you know, I went back to him and spoke to him, and he was about to move across to the head of school of the new um, Melbourne School of Population Health now, Population and Global Health. And um, and that was a real investment then in our public health research and education coming together at the University of Melbourne. So managed to get a position there as they um, opened up, you know, and um, separated from what was then the Department of General Practice and became a standalone and, and now, a, you know, a large school. And... And really grew my academic career there. I came in um, as, a, as a lecturer and worked my way up to associate professor, you know, the hard way, yeah. <laughs> washing the dishes and, yeah. and doing all those things. But <laughs> at the same time, I got then called in by the Vice-Chancellor because they were then in discussions with the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs because they had um, collections that included Indigenous or ancestral remains that they then needed to work with Museum Victoria and and the government to repatriate. And so they were then told that I was there as a junior academic epidemiologist but was working um, to help the universities. Mm, mm. Have a I, think, I think there's a book in there, Catherine. 
Yeah, there's probably a few. <laughs> and they don't, uh, people don't always see the links, but actually yeah. all of these have transferable yes. skills. Yes. And that's yes. what I've really, you know, it's been fascinating. So if we take you back to the beginning of 2020, you're sitting in the de- at your desk in your office and somebody calls you up on the phone and says, we need your help. What happened from then on? If I can go back to October 2019. Of course you can. So I had just, I, I had been a head of school at Deakin for over nine years. Big school, made its way into the top 100 public health schools in the, in the world. Um, and as I stepped down, it was about really reinvigorating my research, particularly around antimicrobial resistance. And we'd been successful in a few years earlier winning some funding to do a large community cohort study. So we followed households up for two years and looked to see what happened to these MRSA strains, so, you know, staph, golden staph, um, normal staph, and see actually what happens, where, where antimicrobial resistance is introduced, how that might spread or persist at the household level. And we set up a partnership with a group in Denmark. So the Serum, um, Staten Serum Institute, Mark Steger and his group. And so we were interested in doing some collaborations there because they were developing new genetic techniques so that we could look at samples we collected and see where people had more than one bug that they were carrying at a time and what that might mean to protect you from acquiring new bugs and so on out of these staph strains. So I'd gone to Denmark And while I was there, I know this is a long answer (laughs) to your question, but while I was there, I had a phone call from a freelance reporter who'd been asked by the BBC to do a story on something no one in the world had really ever heard of, which was wastewater or sewerage epidemiology surveillance. And, of course, we now think, was there ever a time when we didn't know about wastewater surveillance? But it was certainly then. And so I worked with her to kind of give her some general introductory papers and to explain how it was used. It was... You know, re- registering levels of um, byproducts of illicit drug use and a whole range of things that were sort of looking at different measures of health and risk in a community. So, turn around, I come back to Australia. I acquire a virus on the plane from a very sick young woman behind me. I land, and within 48 hours, the sort of like the first days of November 2019, I have pneumonia. And I've, I've kind of got the documentation of me writing to my GP saying, because I was trying to get, then get back on a plane to go to my other collaborators in, in um, Western Australia. And I was documenting the, this illness that I had. And she was frustrated. She just kept saying, go to bed, get well, and I'm not leaving you, you know, letting you get on a plane again until you do that, um, or I'll put you in hospital, you know. Um, so anyway, I went through this terrible um, infection and basically acquired a post-viral infection uh, uh, syndrome as a result of that. So it put me in a really unique headspace in terms of this this virus emerging out of Wuhan. So the guy I was working with, Mark, in Denmark, he came over to Australia in, in December and we were meant to meet in Perth. So I get well enough for my GP to say she'll let me back on the plane. I go to Perth but I can't meet Mark because he's locked away with some weird respiratory illness. <laughs> so we eventually catch up and I keep saying this we're starting to hear the the noise the you know the chatter coming out about Wuhan. And I said what do you think? Could that be could, might have we been exposed to that? You know what's going on here? He wound up becoming one of the big leads in the work coming out of Denmark which has been brilliant. You know they've got great linked data, they they do all the genomic work. 
So he got completely immersed. I, in February, had a call from that same BBC journalist freelancer, <laughs> now doing a story for The Guardian on this new virus, but said, I'll go straight to Catherine. And she wanted to know what the story would be because no, you know, it wasn't really a direct threat to us and at that stage we were hoping we might keep it you know, on the air side at the airports mm-hmm. and so on. But she, um, that story then, we brought in Alan, she brought in Alan Ching, but I said, I think the story is going to be how we work through something like this as a federation. Mm-hmm. Um, with most of our public health laws at state level, we need the coordination. And this is obviously before National Cabinet and other things were put in place to really try and build that cohesive response and so that that became the story but that then meant everybody else started ringing me up um and it and it escalated because then they would just see you as someone who could explain a complex issue in a way that they felt their listeners could understand and and so it grew from that so it wasn't an immediate kind of switch it on or you know i'm i'm the expert in covid because we do have um coronavirus experts, but no one was expert in coronavirus as a pandemic threat um, with this new SARS-CoV-2. But equally, how it impacts you personally, I think, does change the way you you engage and the things you're starting Mm. to think about very early on. And yeah. So to be fair, there had been some planning by the infectious diseases mm. community in mm. Melbourne and around the world for anything that might pop up, but nobody. So they had some plans, but nothing, anything that was manageable to uh, get a lid on this uh, COVID nineteen um, epidemic. Well, most of it was based on flu. The idea that it would be flu, influenza, you know, was always seen as our our greatest, most live threat because we've got human flu virus you can get that jump over from uh, spillover from the animal flu influenza viruses and you get that sudden shift in the flu virus that can now infect humans but looks very different to Mm. the seasonal Mm. viruses we've had so that's where the attention was always Mm. put and the plans are interesting because it's only now when you go back the you know benefit of hindsight but we realize how many bits that weren't connected and you know I have a PhD student Matthew Bush looking at quarantine and you know recognizing that people had thought about bits of it but there was no clear indication in Australia about you know sort of an implicit assumption that there would be home quarantine but how do you get people from the airport safely to their homes Mm -hmm. without exposing Mm -hmm. other people and what happens if someone's a visitor or they've got vulnerable people at home and they don't want to stay there so there was a lot that had to be done on the fly and it's really quite extraordinary when you look Mm -hmm. at that against this you know timeline that we have so you were saying before that you're doing many hours a day or week what just what was that demand on you like it was it was like starting off with great enthusiasm in a short sprint and realising that it wasn't one kilometre, it was 35,000. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that was the thing. And, and every time you, you thought it might ease back, it didn't. Something else would, would shift and emerge. And the job, I don't think people always understand, you know, what epidemiology is. I know a lot of people now say, I can say the word. And usually as soon as they say that, they can't. You know, it's just one of those things that it, it, it freezes them up. But, um, it, it, you know, you had to be on top of the data. And there were a lot of people out there with opinions on what was going on. But, but I saw my contribution as trying to understand the emergent data and communicating that and also contributing to the research. 
And you're also engaged in international media because there was a fascination about what was going on in Australia. That, that fascination alternated between it's amazing, what's it like to not have SARS-CoV-2 in your community in 2020? Um, through, you know, obviously we did in Victoria with the second wave, but for most of the time and most of the country, we, we did suppress that viral transmission. But then when we were really pushing hard and, and, and it was no longer about suppression, it was, it was about zero because as soon as you had any virus, there was this fear it would just keep taking off. Then they were coming to us saying, what are you doing? Like it was an interesting shift, but there was this, always this international interest. And anyway, they were, you know, everyone was sharing their data and their experience. And you know, I'd be invited into the uh, all-parties parliamentary hearings in the UK, for example. So you're working around the clock because it's not a nine-to-five Australian thing anyway. It's, but also when you add in the international component. Mm. So you know, you'd wake up five o'clock in the morning you'd be preparing you'd have you know 45 minutes with a with a quickly grabbed cup of coffee at home to try and catch up on what's happened overnight in that short sleep you've had before then going on to usually live tv um maybe sometimes with two cameras out the front of your house to the amusement of my neighbors Mm -hmm. and then the the day only starts to begin that would get other people you know wanting information from you or engaging you or trying to book you and I you know, professors don't have EAs. I was, um, I, I had a full-time job just trying to manage myself, let alone do all this. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was very, very, very full-on, and it was seven days a week. I didn't know whether I was coming or going, but you couldn't, you couldn't stop because it was a lot of work to try and catch up. I know I had colleagues who who stepped away and then came back, and we'd have to sit and brief them so that they felt comfortable again because Mm. it was just coming at us so quickly. Mm. I think we could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. And what I really want to um, say is thank you. Thank you to your contribution to the Victorian health system and the world, really, but your ever-presence and and incredibly helpful explanations night after night on the TV for uh, around the pandemic. So thank Mm. you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. One, you are listening to Radiotherapy. It's 10.37 and 39 seconds. You're listening to me, Dr. Mal. In the studio, we have nurse EpiPen, Dr. KitKat. We've been speaking with Professor Catherine Bennett. And now, welcome to Dr. Lexi Frydenberg. Lexi, you've been on the show before, haven't you? Yes, twice, I think. Were you live or Zoom? Uh, live once and Zoom once. All right. Okay. So you, um, you're used to the whole shenanigans that go on in the studio. It's so lovely to see behind the scenes <laughs> now. You, get to, you, get to, you should never watch sausages being made. That's, that's what I've heard, politics and sausages. And live radio. So, Lexi, I am, I, I am what's, what's the word, embarrassingly naive when it comes to vaping. Yeah? I know that it's bad. I know there's different types of vaping, like there's some with nicotine and there's some not with nicotine. Can, can, pretend I'm a complete ignoramus, don't have to print too much. T- t- can you just give me a broad outline of the different type of vapes that people can shove in their mouths? Thanks, Mal. I think, you know, you're probably one of many who don't know a lot about vaping and potentially it's because your kids are 
your kids are a bit older now, so you may have missed that um, teenage years where the school toilets are filled with kids vaping, which has happened over the last three years. Um, So a lot like the pandemic journey, the vaping epidemic has come and it's come really quickly and we're having to make decisions, advocate, regulate and educate on the run while the research is happening. So... It's happening around the world, and Australia is really a leader in this space at the moment. Um, I've been working a lot with VicHealth and New South Wales Health, and they've been working with the Education Department, um, the QUIT program and other departments to really try and work out what is going on. Mm -hmm. So vapes are battery-operated uh, e-cigarettes is the other name for mm. them. There's, uh, there are toxic chemicals, up to 200 toxic chemicals in many of these um, e-cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority, over 97%, <laughs> have been found to contain nicotine. But it's an unregulated product in Australia and overseas. So we really don't know what people are getting when they're having these vapes. Well, I'm just going to command bold, underline that. That's amazing. So it's I didn't... I mean, I kick myself and not know. It's unregulated, so you can chuck any... Well, you don't know what's actually in the vape. You don't know what's in the vape. Most of them that say they don't contain nicotine have been shown to contain nicotine and many other chemicals like pesticides, weed killers, so many things that shouldn't be going into our lungs are going into our lungs. So that research has been done and the initial education was around trying to get people to know that vapes are full of toxic chemicals as well as full of nicotine. And nicotine, as we all know in this room, is highly addictive. So what we've had over the last three years, we've got a whole generation of young people who are now addicted to nicotine. So as a country, we did amazingly with um, smoking and trying to get rid of smoking. And as Catherine mentioned before, unfortunately... We knew vaping was coming. We knew there were problems with it, but we weren't able to stop it entering the country and the world. And, um, you know, the industry behind vapes and e-cigarettes has had a lot of power and it's really taken off in a big way. So now we're, you know, chasing and really trying to stop this running away from us. Tell me why, I mean, I've got some idea, but why is it, Kids in particular, I mean, when you, when you hear about vaping, it's almost always about kids. It's not about sort of, you know, older people. It seems very much about kids. What, what's the attraction for them and why that particular cohort? Yeah, great question. We do know that um, most vaping in Australia is under the age of 30 and kids as young as 10 oh. are vaping, particularly, and, and at schools as well. So the marketing to war- has been towards kids. So vapes are usually multi-flavoured, taste <clears> like <throat> cinnamon or apple. They're really sweet. You don't smell like you do when you smoke yeah, cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're able to, to vape without their parents and teachers knowing about it. They're also marketed in really colourful ways. Um, So you can buy products that look like highlighters, look like pens. Um, There's products now where you can hide your vapes. So kids can hide them in, um, you know, hairbrushes that open up and you can hide your vapes from your kids. So it's been marketed and well thought out on how to target kids and young people. And unfortunately, we've been, you know... In inverted commas, sucked into this mm. um, epidemic, mm. and we are really trying to counter it now with mm. education. Mm. So, how long has vaping been around? And so, yeah, what do you think is behind this growing 
surge in vaping. Absolutely. So, you know, we've heard about it for a few years, but it's really been in the last two, three years that it's really taken off. And there's been massive um, repercussions of social media. So the targeting has really been on social media. There's been billions and billions of ads and TikToks and influencers who are being paid by companies to promote vaping. Um, And we just know how susceptible we we all are to social media um, and it's been you know a very successful unfortunately it's been a very successful campaign so it is really taken off I think the good news um, we don't want to you know just have on all the negatives the good news is that Australia has been a real leader in advocacy and we've got some new regulations that have come in. So since Jan 1st, um, disposable vapes, which are what most teens Mm. and um, young people are using, have been banned from importation to Australia. And I think that will hopefully make a huge difference. Um, So advocacy and regulation is really important, but then education for those young people and who are already addicted to nicotine, we need to educate them you know, what vaping is, but also to prevent more young people taking up vaping and to help those who are already addicted to nicotine quit vaping. Yeah. I'm curious to see if there's like, or if you know about the, is there a, um, I guess, increase in cigarette smoking as well in these populations? Have attitudes changed? Because about smoking cigarettes in vaping populations or what? Really interesting question. There was a perception from young people, and I've got three teenagers myself, that smoking was very uncool. Yeah. So it stank, no one smokes anymore, and suddenly vaping came in, and vaping was much cooler, you didn't smell, it was colourful, and, you know, all the cool people were doing it. It was initially introduced for people who wanted to give up smoking. Yeah. And so you can get a prescription and see your doctor to help you quit smoking. But what has been found in the latest research is actually we are having more people taking up smoking once they're vaping. So, you know, we're really worried about the long-term consequences of this because we've got a whole generation of people who are now taking up smoking as well as vaping. Um, Thank you, Lexi. Really good explanation of what's going on. Um, so the vaping equipment has stopped coming into the country from the 1st of January. Disposable vapes, uh, the importation is banned, but there's still a lot of illegal vapes coming in and it is still unfortunately very easy for our young people, I've asked my children this regularly, to access it. (laughs) So you could stop at any of those shops um, that are selling tobacco and the vast majority of people can get vapes from behind the counter. So they won't get into trouble, the people selling them? Uh, there is, they will get into trouble if they get caught, but even though the law is there, the policing of the law hasn't quite caught up as yet. Okay, so we've, we've, we're not allowed to smoke them, but will they be banned in public? Because it doesn't look like anything's happened to the volume of people smoking vapes. So it is already illegal to um, smoke vapes where you where it's illegal to smoke cigarettes. So you're not meant to be having vapes in cafes, indoors, where you can't smoke cigarettes, but it hasn't been policed. And because they don't smell, people can just take them out of their pocket, have a quick, um, you know, inhalation, and then to have another quick inhalation. You know, people are still vaping. But I think in the schools, that's where the problem was 
you know, significant mm. in the last few years. My kids told me that at lunchtime, during exams, the bathrooms were full of kids vaping and you couldn't actually use the toilets. Right. So a lot of schools introduced vape detectors in bathrooms. The, you know, teachers were having to police it. That seems to have decreased. Hang on, a vape detector? What does that yeah, do? smoke detectors, detecting vaping. Teachers aren't actually allowed to go into the cubicles yeah. in bathrooms, so you know schools had to divide, uh, you know, find out other ways to wow. work out where the kids were vaping. Wow. So it seems to have decreased in schools, but you're right, EpiPen. I go to cafes and and you know bars, and there are many, many people vaping. Um, oh, I've got a follow-up question for that, but also another question. I'll go up with my follow-up question. So is, um, is secondhand smoking, is there secondhand vaping? Yeah, great question. So as I said, you know, we're early on this journey, but the research is emerging um, and we've had suspicions all along that secondhand vaping will be bad for us and now the research is catching up. We know that particularly I'm a paediatrician, so we're really worried about this in young children. We know that secondhand smoke has a significant effect on young children's and babies' lungs, their airways, they're incredibly sensitive and we now, there's emerging evidence that secondhand vape is also having an effect and because there's up to 200 toxic chemicals, we actually don't know what the future holds. We don't know what the long-term effect yeah. of having these chemicals in secondhand smoke is going to do to our young people's lungs. Yeah. Well, I feel very convinced, not that I really need convincing, but just learning that 300 chemicals, we don't know what's in them. I guess the health messaging is quite clear and the health education around it is quite clear, even though the research is evolving. I guess I'm curious if you know much about what the social messaging is, because I know the health consequences of drinking and I do enjoy drinking alcohol or, you know, we did the same with cigarettes. We know the health consequences of smoking, but people continue to smoke. I guess, is there the social aspect of it? Like, you know, the reputation or the socializing with friends, your friends are doing it. What are we doing to Absolutely. That? So initially a lot of the work in the last few years has been around working out what's in vapes, trying to educate people about that and the health consequences. The messaging is now shifting and there's a lot of work on behavioral change, mm. trying to work out why young people are vaping, trying to do collaborations with young people in working out how they are going to respond to messaging. So, you know, me as a mother, my kids are not going to listen to me um, if I just tell them all the bad things about vaping. So we actually have to work out what do they know, what what do we know, and how to have that conversation. So actually this week, Vic Health and Quit, um, and I'm going to be involved, are releasing... Um, some a, a package on how to talk to your young people about vaping, and I think it will probably help many of our friends and colleagues and adults as well because it's such a new area. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of work being done in this space around Australia at the moment. And adolescents are very good at maintaining that cognitive dissonance between knowing what's bad for them and yet doing it anyway because you know, the frontal lobe hasn't yet fully, fully developed. So, yeah, so it's not often about, you know, how... Uh, the, the negative health repercussions, as um, as you were both saying, it's about uh, sort of social messaging. I had an idea because you know I have the occasional idea. Um, how, <laughs> how about you get 
I don't know, some super famous stars, I don't know, maybe some that have just dropped in Australia, to say vaping is bad for your health. Don't do it, right? Message that way. And here's another way. You get somebody that's super, super uncool, like that nobody likes, some of say, and you get them to vape and you put photos of them up. And so therefore young kids say, well, I don't want to look like him because he's vaping. I think you're on the money here, Val. I think, you know, influencers have been paid and been very involved in messaging how cool vaping is. So we have to counter that and try and get celebrities and other influencers Mm -hmm. to, you know, help us with that messaging. If you have a hotline to Taylor Swift, I would love to get her, um, you know, to message that because we need the people who our young people listen to Mm. to say vaping is not cool. Mm. It's such a fascinating area. We um, at Deakin and across all the universities in Victoria moved to smoke-free campuses in 2014. But just as we were preparing for that, vaping came on the scene. So we're talking more than 10 years now. And we had Nigel Gray, the late Nigel Gray, one of our great you know, uh, champions and um, who paved the pathway around Australia's response to tobacco. And we are absolutely, as you said, world leaders in this space. This is what we do well in terms of prevention. So really disappointing that even seeing it coming and at that stage pulling vaping in with smoking and treating it in the same way when we were discouraging it in shared public spaces and so on, that we couldn't stop this influx. But what's interesting to me is it is almost being promoted as a health thing. It's, you know, it's, it's not only cool, but it's actually better than smoking because, as you say, it doesn't smell on you and you don't have that same you know, association. But what's incredibly frustrating is people don't realise they're becoming nicotine addicted. And that's because we have these unregulated supplies coming in on the black market now where we can't test them. We can't tell people actually they do include nicotine and, in fact, you're showing the signs of addiction. How can we help parents and people themselves realise that they're becoming addicted even though they don't even think it's possible because they don't think they're taking nicotine? What are the signs? I think... That's a really important point. Many young people don't know what nicotine addiction looks like and they don't know what nicotine acutely does to your body. So a lot of the messaging and a lot of the vaping media campaigns at the moment are focusing on what nicotine is doing to your body and your brain. So acutely, it can cause people to be nauseous, vomit, feel quite unwell. And there's um, a term called sick, where you actually can lose consciousness, have seizures. We have people who are hospitalised with acute nicotine um, addiction. We've had young kids who have accessed um, the vape liquid from parents' vapes and had overdoses of nicotine. So nicotine in high quantities, incredibly dangerous. And we know that In some of these disposable vapes, there's the equivalent of up to a pack of cigarettes worth of nicotine in one disposable vapes. So we know there's acute effects of nicotine. We know that there's effects of nicotine withdrawal. And as you mentioned, Mal, young brains are incredibly malleable. We know that young brains don't fully develop till 25. And nicotine's effect on the brain is huge. Attention, concentration... And one of the things young people may not realise it ha- is having a significant effect on their mental health. So anxiety and depression is already huge in our young people and this nicotine addiction is also having an effect. So as a psychiatrist, I think yeah. that's also a really important <laughs> yeah. point. Yeah. Um, so you started talking about I get the mental health um, consequences and 
my understanding is that the research has really probably proliferated in the last three or four years. So the long-term effects of vaping is not really well established. Or like it's, you know, you could maybe look at the four-year effects or three years. What are we starting to see in the same way, I guess, you know, my knowledge of like the cigarette kind of stuff is just from the health uh, messaging on packets. So seeing, I guess, you know, in in news agents, I guess the consequences of smoking – are we going to see the same kind of, I guess, medical, um, particularly perhaps in lungs, mouth? Um, Absolutely. So we know, as you said, we've got a few years' worth of data about those acute effects, so irritation in the mouth and throat, um, acute lung inflammation, so we're getting, you know, particularly young people who've got asthma, it's exacerbating their asthma, causing um you know, lung infections. It also can cause effects on the heart, so a racing heart um, and palpitations, so that rapid heartbeat it can cause gut symptoms. So we know it can cause those acute symptoms, but we also know because more than 97% of disposable vapes contain nicotine, we already know the long-term effects of nicotine from all our years of research in, in smoking. So we know that it has long-term effects on the lungs and cancer and inflammatory lung disease. We know it has an effect on the heart, on the brain, So we are extrapolating from the nicotine data, but, you know, it is scary, the unknown, particularly as a paediatrician, because, you know, there's all these chemicals and nicotine and we don't have long-term data and we're not going to have that for another 10, 20 Mm. years, but we can't afford to wait for that data. We've actually got to act on it now. Yeah, it must be. I mean, it's heartbreaking to see, you know, Kids, I mean, taken advantage of by this. You know, this, that's what gets me too. They're doing things because somebody else is making a profit of it. It's going to be illegal when it's coming in. They don't know what's in it. It's going to. Who knows what long-term side effects are going to, it's going to have? It's affecting them right here and right now. Their peer groups are doing it. I mean, it's this sort of overwhelming sense of oh my god, what am I going to do? You I mean I could, the average parent is going to be hard pressed? Do you have any thoughts about what you might tell the average parent when they come to you? Yeah, I think it's very similar to how I talk to young people about alcohol and drugs. So just educate yourself, know what vaping is, look at the resources on Vic Health, on Quit um, and RCH, Royal Children's Hospital as well, of resources. So educate yourself, be curious, be open, be non-judgmental with your young people, try and ask them what they know, what they're doing and really... If they're vaping and they are open to talking about it, tell them you're there to help them and know where to reach for support. So through GPs, through the QUIT program, you know, help them get that support because if you can break that nicotine addiction early, you know, that's a win. I find it impossible being non-judgmental with my children, Lexi. There's got to be a thing that's going to give me something else. I'll, I'll send them off to you see you. Do a little bit of acting, Mal. It's a really important to have those open conversations. I've got to feign sincerity, clearly. Um, is there any uh, country that's done it well, any jurisdiction that you, you can look to and go, wow, wow, they've done this really, really well? Look, I was overseas middle of the year and I was absolutely shocked how prevalent vaping and smoking still is in Europe. And when I came back to Australia, I was quite um, happy with, you know, definitely smoking we're not seeing around the streets. I think actually Australia is leading the way, but working closely with a lot of other countries around the world. 
So I think we have the resources and the desire to make a difference now. And also the runs on the board from the quit campaign and, and, and so forth. Um, yeah, I was surprised too. I was recent, well, last year I was overseas in Europe and I just could not believe how many people smoke. Like we're so used to it here in Australia. Like when you see somebody smoke, you kind of, oh, that's interesting. There's like everybody, you know. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I absolutely acknowledge the, uh, the incredible work that we've been doing here in Australia. Any final words about, um, I mean, you talked about resources, uh, Vic Health, Royal Children's Hospital, anywhere else? The QUIT, the, the QUIT program. And, um, right, okay. yeah, so QUIT and Vic Health have been working very well collaboratively and the education department in Victoria as well. So just right. um, at, in January, there were new resources released for years um, 7 till 10, to, for the schools to use to educate the kids. So I think we have to educate both ourselves as adults to know what to do with our kids, but also educate the kids because they're starting really, really young. That's heartbreaking, 10 years old, mm. my goodness. And you're seeing kids come in with nicotine overdoses. Oh, my goodness, that really pull, pulls at the heart strings of, of, I guess, any parent, any person, really. Absolutely terrible. But there's good news, as you say. We're, we're getting on top of it, and you're working with uh, Vic Health, so, of course... That, uh, that will stand them in good stead. You have been listening to Radiotherapy. Thank you so much for coming in, Lexi. The time flies, doesn't it? <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Feels like about 30 seconds. It was actually, I don't know, 20 minutes. Um, thank you so much also to uh, Professor Catherine Bennett for, for coming in and, and uh, telling us about her time, about her development as an academic and all the amazing things you've been doing. We're going to ask both of you to promise on air that you're going to come back in again. Can you make that promise? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'd love to. Good, okay. So you've heard it. We've got witnesses. Thank you also, too, to my co-hosts, Nurse EpiPen and Professor Kit Kat. We'll be catching up with you next Radiotherapy. Now it's time for Einstein and Coco. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.